0: Coming up in this episode.
1: My amino acid profile is good. I've not, you know, developed any amino acid deficiencies, despite the fact that plant-based proteins may not be as, you know, bioavailable. My A1C is great. So I can go out and run for five hours and do it fasting and have a little bit of carbohydrate in there. And, you know, it's been going well. Now, if I need, you know, I've always said that if I end up, finding reason that I need to add animal protein back, I have absolutely no problem considering to do that, but you know, so far I haven't needed to do that.
0: I think that's where this is particularly interesting from me and I think from a lot of our listeners because when people think keto, oftentimes you have a lot of fatty animal product or fatty right. meats essentially as one of the key staples, if you will. Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health Via Modern Nutrition. Dr. Carrie Daulis, really great to have you on the HVMN Podcast.
1: Hi, thanks a lot for having me, I appreciate it.
0: So I'm really excited to have this conversation because over the history of our podcast, the ketogenic diet, metabolic syndrome, how to manage some of these conditions through nutrition is very important, or, or one of our most recurring topics. And in recent months, the school of thought around using the carnivore variant of keto mm-hmm. has been a popular topic of the conversation. So I'm really excited to hear your perspective, your experience from doing the ketogenic diet from a plant-based perspective. So we'll get into all of that, but before we Perfect. open up that can of worms there... I think our audience would love to hear your background. I know you're one of the first female spine surgeons to be certified in, in the United States, so an interesting medical background in, in history there.
1: I actually did a pathology residency after I graduated from medical school and was competing internationally at the time in duathlon. Sustained an injury that was pretty substantial and ended up shifting to orthopedics. I did my residency then at the Cleveland Clinic and was there for six years and thought I was going to do sports orthopedics, ended up falling in love with orthopedic spine and went out to San Francisco, did a spine fellowship out there where, yes, I was one of the at least first 10 to the best of our ability to figure out female orthopedic spine surgeons. And I came back to Northeastern Ohio to work at the Cleveland Clinic for a while. And then now I'm currently in a big orthopedic and plastic surgery private practice group and very involved the North American Spine Society speaking mostly on how we utilize dietary changes and nutritional strategies um, as well as other lifestyle things to help both our surgical patients and our non-surgical patients from the standpoint of outcomes related to spine.
0: Fascinating I think mean, just growing up I think you get the stereotype of orthopedics being very just jockish big men you know manipulating people and all that so I'm just curious yeah. from a training and going through the sort of the pipeline perspective how was that I mean a fun experience I mean I think it kind of makes sense given your sports background for that sports orthopedics was an initial entry point curious to hear how I guess the initial entry into the spine really I guess captivated you and you decided to shift that direction how was that
1: I'm not a big person um for sure there were You know, all of the guys in my residency and fellowship were a lot bigger than I am. We sort of joke in orthopedics, it's in force we trust, but we like to, you know, say that finesse does well too. So, you know, if you use physics, you can accomplish a lot of things. You know, there's this fallacy that you have to be super strong to do spine surgery. And honestly, I do a lot of surgeries through a minimally invasive approach and big surgeries, small incisions. And I mean, there are days where I come out of the operating room and I'm, you know, dripping with sweat because that's just the nature we're wearing lead and working under lights and all of those things. It can be physically demanding, but it is certainly something that a woman can do. You don't need to be super strong to do it. I mean, the, the, heaviest thing I do all day is to when we roll a patient over to do surgery on their back is the catch of the patient. So that's probably one of the more strenuous things. I mean, we put a lot of screws into patients' backs and that bone is really hard. That can be somewhat strenuous. But as far as that, I lift weights and I run a lot. So, you know, those things probably help to keep me fit. But I certainly don't think that gender should be a barrier to women considering orthopedics or spine because... There's almost nothing that we can't accomplish. I can tell you that from a sports standpoint, I sort of s- struggled with the really big football players trying to test their ACL because I just physically couldn't <laughs> get my hand around their thigh to be able to lift it. And sometimes their thigh weighed more than I did. So, you know, there's some niche stuff in orthopedics that, you know, maybe, but there are other ways to actually test that. that. You utilize again back to that finesse thing
0: yeah no I I think one good to hear then too I think it just makes intuitive sense I mean the human body while resilient you don't want someone really just yanking things around when you're being opened up right like I I very much see this as an art right like when you're opening someone up this you can be a lot more finessed and nuanced with like smaller incisions which obviously both probably better for recovery and rehabilitation than just someone yanking around with just big muscles.
1: Yeah, we don't want yanking around. I mean, and especially in spine where you're working around very delicate nerves in very small places. I wear microscopes on my eyes or I work with a big microscope so that I can clear off space for nerves and then stabilize the spine. And Definitely there is an art to doing it, and I love it. I mean, I always joke that it's my most zen time of my week when I'm in the operating room because there's nothing else that's going on around. I don't hear my phone. I don't pay attention to anything else. It's what I'm doing right now, and that sort of singularly focused time is great for me. I also like clinic with my patients where I see them and we talk about lifestyle and we talk about the things they do. If I had to do just one of those, I think I'm too sort of... High energy and sort of scattered and all over the place. I need to keep myself busy doing a lot of different things. So
0: interesting. A lot of our endurance athlete guests that come on board, you know, these are Ironman champions, doing mean, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten hour races. They very much describe like like a flow state, and it's interesting that you're sort of describing that when you're operating, you're almost achieving a similar state. So let's let's put a bookmark there.
1: Got it. Sounds good. You
0: talked about a little bit about being a duathlon which mm-hmm. is a uh, run, bike, run. Okay. Run, bike, run. So it's three legs, similar to a triathlon, but you're still replacing a run with a swim.
1: Yeah. And I did triathlons at the time. I mean, I'm 46 now, so we're going on 20 years now since I was competing, maybe a little less than that. I don't remember how old I was when I stopped officially, but I did ultra marathons at that time. And I did marathons and cycling races and I did some triathlons, although I am like a rock in the water and I never could sort of get that buoyancy and speed down. So the triathlons that I did, I just put my head down and tried not to get kicked and drowned until I could get out and get to my bike. Yeah. I
0: have a lot of friends who are early or or budding triathletes and usually the swim is the most, it's the most... You're either
1: a swimmer or you're not. I think we
0: all kind of feel confident on the ground at the very least. So it's just kind of like, make sure you don't drown and then then bike and run.
1: Or swim off in some random tangent.
0: Were you a college athlete? Like, how'd you get into...
1: Oh, I was 100 pounds heavier than I am right now in college. Wow. And that's sort of a story in and of itself. But no, I was athletic in high school. Long story why I gained a bunch of weight in college, but I did. I was 100 pounds heavier than I am right now when I started medical school. And into the end of first year medical school when I sort of really decided I needed to make some changes. And I started really watching when I was eating and exercising. And that turned into at the time, the calories in calories out model was sort of the thing to do. And I am one that likes endurance. I mean, that's partly why I'm able to get into that flow state, as we talked about with surgery, is I can do that long distance running. And then it became where I would run a lot, but I wanted to sort of decrease the impact on my joints. And I started cycling to be able to do more of that and discovered that I really liked being on the bike. And I had done a lot of cycling when I was in high school, although not competitively, just on my own. And it was one thing led to another where somebody said, hey, you should do a race. And then I did well, and it was fun.
0: And that's how it starts, right? Someone challenges for the first time. And it's like, hey, this is kind of fun.
1: Hey, this is fun. Oh,
0: there's definitely some sadomasochist sort of perspective of that? Because it's never that fun when you're doing it. But afterwards, it's like, wow, I was able to do something pretty intense.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, in my 20s, it was probably that way. I would have to say the running that I do now, and I run long distances now. It's a very different thing now where if a run doesn't feel good, I'm more likely to bag it. But you know, out in the woods when I'm running by myself, my day is pretty stressful. So, you know, it's my time to unwind and decompress. And, you know, on the weekend to go for a long run is, you know, my way of hitting reset and thinking. And so it is less of that intensity. I go really slow right now. It's not about speed. It's about just the overall experience of it. I yeah. think as we get older, it's, you know, sort of about how do we bring more presence into everything that we do rather than trying to manipulate our experience with it.
0: So we're dancing around sort of the sports, the weight gain, and subsequent weight yeah. loss. Obviously I think when we talk about all those concepts, people think nutrition, they think diet, and usually even within the triathlon or duathlon context, they always say that the third or fourth sport is nutrition, right? Because these yep. are pretty long in, in events, you don't want to bonk. How do you optimize for that? So. I know you have a pretty interesting backstory there with uh, type 1 and all of that. Can you give us the background and and context there?
1: With type 1 diabetes? So that, ironically, I was diagnosed when I was an adult, which they originally thought was somewhat unusual, but it turns out about 30% of type 1s are, are diagnosed as an adult. And it's definitely increasing in its prevalence, both in children and in adults. You know, had lost all the weight and was fit and was out doing a lot of speaking about how we impact our patients from a metabolic standpoint with diet and lifestyle changes. And I went for my own executive physical and they said, Oh, your A1C is elevated. And I was like, "What? how can that be a thing? That's not a thing. And so at the time the questions were like, well, are you tired? I'm like, well, I'm a busy surgeon. So of course I'm tired. And you know, are you going to the bathroom a lot? I'm like, well, yeah, because I'm drinking a lot. Silly. Like, so doctors were the, were our own worst enemies. And initially there was sort of this thought that I was type two and then it sort of fast forward rapidly became apparent that I was type one diabetic. And I had initially tried to manage, you know, at the time to keep my blood sugars under control with a really low carbohydrate diet. And I was sort of in that honeymoon phase where your pancreas is still producing some insulin. And I was able to prolong that for a period of time by eating very low carbohydrate. And, you know, in the past I'd lost weight. I'd been predominantly plant-based for a long time. And then in the past, originally was plant-based when I was 12, I gave up meat. And even when I gained weight in college, I was, I sort of called it a crepitarian diet.
0: And at age 12, was it a moral, ethical... Personal preference, taste?
1: A little bit, yeah. I mean, I just honestly didn't like meat. My mom, I shouldn't say bad things, but like whenever she cooked meat, it was like to perfection and then 45 minutes longer. Um, So I just didn't really like it. I remember saying the only things that I like about meat are the condiments that you put on it. So, And I was gaining weight at the time, you know, in my family weight gain, you know, we sort of genetically are predisposed to easily gaining weight. And I was, and it seemed like a way I read about the Pritikin diet at that point, And I was like, all right, well, I'll give this a try. And the avoiding meat just sort of stuck for me for a long period of time. I mean, it's not something I don't, I don't really like it. I mean, I'm an animal lover. I think that that probably has a little bit less to do with it. It's not really an ethical thing. It's really about, let's just be real. Like I want to fit into a certain size of clothes yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, what motivates and I want to be healthy and that's what motivates a lot of what I do. So after I was diagnosed with type one, I went really low carb and It was sort of a more traditional keto diet. At one point, I was practically zero carb and almost you know, carnivore at that point because I just couldn't get my blood sugars under control. And I'm like, this isn't making sense to me. I'm doing everything. And as it turned out, it's because it was not at all type two, it was type one diabetes. So my pancreas was right. It got to that threshold. So you've
0: switched meat back on as you were just going low carb, zero carb,
1: right? I was plant based when I was diagnosed. And then I added meat back because at the time, it seemed like that was the only way to do low carb. And that was the thing that made the most sense to me is, okay, I've been already sort of doing all of the right things from a plant based standpoint, let me try this low carb thing. And for sure, it made a ton of sense as far as managing blood sugars. And I think there've been plenty of studies since then that have shown that you can improve it with a very low carbohydrate diet. And the the other thing that I struggled with was, you know, I was sort of in the plant-based world and I was gaining weight on the sort of traditional low fat 10% whole food plant-based diet. And I went to a lot of the sort of so-called experts in the area and they're like, well, you're doing it wrong. I'm like, I don't know how I like I'm counting calories. I could, you know, I've joked that I could win an Olympic competition in calorie counting. So (laughs) it didn't fly with me at all that I was doing it wrong. And I mean, that's one of the things that's my biggest frustration is when people struggle for us to assume that they're doing it wrong rather than we need to provide them guidance for success. So I went really low carb. And when you go on insulin, they tell you you have to eat a certain amount of carbs to balance it with the insulin that you have to give. And within a couple of weeks of bouncing between blood sugars of 440 in a day, you know, even with a biochemistry degree and all of my science background, I was like, this is stupid. I'm just going to go back to low carb. So for quite a while, I was standard low carb.
0: So you're yo-yoing up to 440 milligrams per deciliter and crashing down and just trying to titrate.
1: Yeah. And I mean, and that can be type one diabetes. I mean, if you get sick, like even on my best days now, like, not my best days, but if you get sick, type one with the hormone shifts can do that. I mean, I've had days still, even with the way I eat, where if I'm really sick, I can go over 300 and that's just the nature of type one. But my A1C now is, you know, for the past probably seven years now, my A1C is ranged between 4.8 and 5.3 being low carb. So even with some of those rare times where And stress alone, I mean, that was one of the things, you know, stress in the operating room or if I'm working really hard in the operating room, my blood sugar will actually go up from that and I need insulin from that. And the insulin dosing strategies are a little different for stress-related blood sugar elevations rather than food-related blood sugar elevations. So it's... Yeah, I just want to
0: add a sidebar for folks that aren't familiar with the blood sugar ranges. Typically, you want to stay around 100 milligrams a deciliter. Obviously, if you eat a meal, that will go higher. 150, 180, a couple hundred, but when we are talking about 300, 400, that is quite high. So it sounds like obviously with type one, it's much harder to control that blood sugar.
1: I just looked at it the other day. So my average is a you know about 95, and my standard deviation is about 15. Is my you know when I'm under control, you know good control, which is yeah. where I try to be 98 percent of the time, barring illness. That's where my numbers run,
0: which is super solid. And then hemoglobin A1c, which is sort of like a three month snapshot running window of average blood sugar and usually under 5.6, 5. 5.7 5. is considered what you want to be at. So it sounds like you're right. well nicely in that range.
1: Yeah, we start to diagnose diabetes either type 1 or type 2 when you get over 6.5. Yeah. Metabolic syndrome or prediabetes is 5.6, 5. 5.7 5. Mm-hmm. and above. And there's data on you know, the microvascular which are the small blood vessel complications or the macrovascular like heart complications depending on where your A1C is at. And we can see some of the microvascular complications of diabetes, even in what's considered a more normal range where you're in that pre-diabetic range. So I see a lot of patients with that. And part of it is I want to minimize the complications, the kidney complications, the neurologic complications. I'm a surgeon, so my vision is super important, obviously, and from a cardiovascular standpoint. So there's that, but I also am a mom and a wife and a surgeon and an athlete and I don't wanna to have to mess around with roller coaster blood sugars all day. So that's the other motivation
0: for staying super low carb. Can you speculate why adult onset type one is increasing? I mean, I think that's something that I mean, I don't think I think this is an open science question, but obviously this is something that I'm sure you've thought about more than than most.
1: You know, There's different thoughts on is it viral, is it related to leaky gut, is it environmental factors? I, I don't think we know the answer to that. I have a strong genetic predisposition to it, having run my genetics. I also have celiacs, which I was diagnosed first with that, and they are on the same gene. About 30% of people have type 1 diabetes, also have celiac. Mm. So why are allergies increasing? Why are other autoimmune conditions increasing the way they are? I don't. We don't know the answer to that yet. Certainly I am interested in it because I have passed my genetics along to my kids. So if there are things that we can do to figure it out, but I wonder, you know, is oxidative stress that I did when I was exercising like crazy, is that a factor? The lack of sleep as a, you know, orthopedic resident for the better part of 15 years, you know, was that a factor? I think those are all potential factors. Why it hit at that particular moment, you know, is a stressful time in my life that may be related to it. But it's hard to know, you know, and there's a lot of kids. I mean, there are little, little kids like six months old that are diagnosed with it. So basically they don't have those factors where they're in utero factors. Who knows? A lot of the type one parents, you know, have go back and say, oh, should I have done this different with my kids? And the thing is, is we can't like, I don't know what pathway with my own kids to try and prevent it other than keeping them active keeping them healthy, dealing with, you know, all of the lifestyle stuff, making sure they're getting good sleep. But honestly, parenthood is about survival 99% of the time anyway. So. Yeah.
0: And I suspect perhaps something to do with environmental pollution and something like that, which is very, very hard to control unless you're living in, like in a glass box or something. Right.
1: I mean, and I grew up out in the country, we had well water, we ate foods that we got locally. So we we didn't eat a lot of Processed stuff necessarily growing up.
0: Yeah, it is what it is. You got to play the cards you're dealt, right? It sounds like you right. did most things right, and just all right. So it's a, something that you've got to handle and deal with. Sorry for bouncing around a little bit, but it's fun to hit on some of these topics. So you moved back to a ketogenic diet. You mm-hmm. reincorporated animal protein to your diet. Yep. You saw some success, but obviously this is somewhat early in your experimentation and self sort of nutrition practice. Let's continue on from there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I had no intention of going back to plant-based because I didn't think that that was something that was possible to do low-carbon plant-based. And it's sort of a complicated story, but I got a virus and it impacted my stomach and for a period of time. And I felt good while I was on low-carb, the standard low-carb, including animal protein. But there were certain markers that I could just never get down. Like my high-sensitivity CRP, I could never get that Mm. down below 1, no matter what I did.
0: So that's an inflammation marker. Yeah.
1: Yeah, So there were inflammatory markers that I couldn't get down. And I would get sick a lot more than what I do now. So there are just things that were off. I I thought it felt good. But looking back, I feel a whole lot better now. And I got sick with a bad virus and went into decay and it was problematic overall. But I ended up having to try and sort of figure out for a period of time how to get nutrition in. And protein was one of the harder things for me to do until my stomach recovered, which it did. And at the time, I found that initially I was just doing straight amino acids. Like I found a lab where I could just buy amino acids from it and make my own shakes and do things like that. And then it ended up being that, in smoothies, the plant-based proteins were a little bit easier for my stomach to tolerate it. Maybe some of that had to do with the different concentrations of the different amino acids and how they impact gastric emptying, just how fast things move out of your stomach. And as I was getting better, I felt like I needed to add animal protein back. And every time I did, it just didn't work with me. And then at one point I was like, wait, this has been a couple months where I'm eating all of this plant-based stuff And it's working pretty well. My blood sugars are good. I'm staying healthy. At the time, I sort of came into it with some amino acid deficiencies because there was a period of time where I wasn't really able to get in a lot of protein. And I fixed it with plant-based proteins. And I measured those amino acids. So that was telling. And so I just decided, why am I fighting this? I'm just going to stay plant-based for a while and ride this experiment out and see what happens. And it's been a number of years now and I'm still riding it out and haven't had a reason to change my inflammatory markers. So my high sensitivity CRP went to 0.2 or 0.3, depending on which lab we look at. My A1C has stayed good my amino acid profile is good. I've not, you know, developed any amino acid deficiencies, despite the fact that plant-based proteins may not be as bioavailable. My A1C is great. So I can go out and run for five hours and do it fasting and have a little bit of carbohydrate in there. And you can is what I use for that. Yep. But it's been going well. Now, if I need, you know, I've always said that if I end up finding reason that I need to add animal protein back, I have absolutely no problem considering to do that, but you know, so far I haven't needed to do that.
0: I think that's where this is particularly interesting from me and I think from a lot of our listeners because when people think keto, oftentimes you have a lot of fatty animal product or fatty right. meats essentially as one of the key staples, if you will. So what does your diet look like? I imagine avocados, nuts. What is your, you know, you know how, how are you filling up, you know, 2,000, 2,500 calories or whatever calories you're eating?
1: I typically have black coffee in the morning. And if it's an OR day, honestly, I just operate all day and then I eat when I get home. I mean, oh, I'll wow. keep some an avocado or some nuts with me, macadamia nuts, pistachios. You have to be a little bit careful. Like everybody in the low carb world knows like you can go too intense on nuts. Yep. But if I eat during the day, like I'll make a salad. And actually I helped out with ethan weiss with the keto the key eats where the meal plans we sort of set up a lot of the plant-based meal plans for that program and so a lot of that is sort of we outlined it in that to give people ideas but you know a big salad or a smoothie for lunch and in that i'll put kale arugula romaine spinach the plant-based sources of fats are olive oil avocado nuts and seeds I intermittently go back and forth. I'll use whole coconut. I'm not, I don't use as much coconut oil at this point. Mm. And then I'll add some plant-based proteins to that. So that may be, there's a thing called lupini beans, which it's an Italian bean that have zero net carbs after the, they're, you know, sort of brined and processed. Um, And so I'll throw those into a salad, black soybeans, tofu, tempeh, hemp seeds, chia. I don't use a lot of pea protein, but if I use a protein source, it'll either be pea protein or hemp protein or a mixture of them to get the amino acid profile. And then in the evening, you know, I'll snack on nuts and seeds during the day here in the office, almonds, things like that. Dinner then is usually some sort of roasted vegetable, stir fried vegetable. Lately, I've been super busy, so it's been really simple. Sometimes I try and make Indian type dishes or other things like that. There's a hemp risotto that I've made that I really like It's good. And then another one of the plant-based proteins. So I'll put the protein with it. If I run a lot, then I'll increase the amount of protein. I may have a protein shake after a really long run and maybe some increase in branched chain amino acids with that. But again, that's more sports-specific stuff, not necessarily yep. general health stuff. Fascinating. So- And then I eat dark, like Lily's dark chocolate. I'll have that almost every day because I like chocolate.
0: Yeah. And actually, the 100% dark chocolate is actually very, very low in net carbs.
1: Yeah. Lily's makes a great dark chocolate. It's sweetened. You know, sweetener wise, I tend to use erythritol. I I don't like erythritol as much. It can bother my stomach a little bit, but allulose is one that's, you know, newer on the market and works well. Stevia is what I used for a long time. It can have an aftertaste for some people that they don't like. Monk fruit is another one that. At small amounts, it won't have an impact on my blood sugar.
0: Nice. I mean, it sounds like a pretty varied, complete nutrition protocol. I mean, I think one of the questions I think a lot of people would have is how do you get enough fat, right? Because I, I think it's like usually if you want to be low carb keto, you want to be, you know, upwards of 70 plus percent fat. And obviously, there's some yep. variation. So, obviously, that means a lot of avocado, nuts.
1: Avocado, olive oil, nuts, seeds, macadamia nuts. I mean those are high in percentage fats. Um, if I need something extra, I like to take nori rolls, mm-hmm. which is the nori paper, and I put really good olive oil because I'm picky about the olive oil on yeah. that with some salt, maybe some nutritional yeast. I roll it like that's a snack that I'll have, and that's an easy way to bump up the fat if I'm hungry. I only will do that if I'm hungry. But it's really not hard to get the fats. I mean, there are plenty of healthy plant fats that are unprocessed that are out there. I eat an avocado at least a day. I mean, I buy them super green and put them in the fridge and I buy like 20 at a time.
0: that's something that I've been personally want to experiment with. And I think, you know, just kind of the the key points there, it seems quite palatable and, and doable. But I have to admit that I've been much more on the carnivore side of things. And it's kind of interesting to not make it this an uh, argument or a debate per se, but maybe talk about some of the trade-offs or considerations when, and it sounds like from your perspective, you're not necessarily dogmatic on plant versus ant carnivore either. But I think it would be helpful for our listeners just to get some of the considerations on what to think about or what to optimize when you're choosing more of a plant-based or more of an animal-based version of yeah. low-carb. And it sounds like the fat choices or the oil cho- choices that you're choosing, olive oil, aren't like sort of the demonized sort of soybean oil or canola oil. So like some of the highly oxidized PUFAs. Yeah, I'd love to tease into some of those considerations that folks perhaps on the, on the animal side would be like, hey, plant-based keto is dangerous or risk because of XYZ. But it sounds like you're already making choices or, or decisions that avoid a lot of the sort of low-hanging fruit that's easy to criticize from the sort of carnivore side?
1: I am doing this based on my own lab markers, which improved. And I didn't do as well when I was on a more meat-heavy diet. So for me, can I say, maybe it's my gut microbiome. Like, I don't know the answer to that. Why is it that I tend to do better on plants and other people don't? Why do some people really struggle with broccoli and asparagus and Brussels sprouts and, you know, all of those things? Whereas I not only love them, but I feel really good when I eat them. Yeah. So I don't know that I know the answer to that. Maybe people have leaky gut, and that's why carnivore diet, because it's high in glutamate, is a potential benefit for them because they're healing their gut. Whether you know people can stay on it long term, I'm not sure. Whether I can stay on this long term, I don't know. It's been a number of years and so far so good. Right. Maybe I'll add fish back at some point. We keep omega-3s. I take algae oil. I'd stop taking that if I added something like salmon back. And I may do that. I worry, you know, the current literature is still that, you know, elevated LDL is a problem. I have really high lipoprotein little a,
0: even on a plant based keto.
1: Lipoprotein little a isn't really something that's necessarily modifiable by diet. So that's one of those things that is strongly genetic. And there's some ways that you can manipulate it a little bit. So, you know, the most current thinking is if you've got that, you want to keep your LDL as optimized as possible. Plus, I'm a type one diabetic, so you want to keep LDL as optimized as possible. And, you know, not to get into that, that's sort of outside my wheelhouse to have that argument. But my LDL went into this high 60s, low 70s, or my particle count is optimized on the plant based low carb diet. So those are some of the benefits that there was a substantial drop when I shifted from a more traditional ketogenic diet to doing more plant-based. And whether that's the fiber, whether that's the PUFAs, because I do still get them, but I get them in a whole food form. You know, I'm not smart enough to know whether the controversy around the PUFAs, is it related to how you process these seed oils in order to get them out, or is that an issue Or is it the poofas themselves? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but I know there's data that shows that poofas can have a positive impact on LDL. Obviously, I get a lot of monounsaturated fats in olive oil and a lot of the polyphenols in there. So what are the factors there that are anti-inflammatory and good for your lipid profile?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some open science here. And I think my understanding there for seed oils or PUFAs is that the two main concerns are the omega-3, to omega-6 ratio. It sounds like right. you're balancing the omega-3s with something like algae oil, which you can get right. DHA and EPA from algae oil. Yep. And then from a lot of these refined seed oils, there's a high oxidation risk there where those yeah. uh, PUFAs turn into sort of like oxidized forms that aren't necessarily yeah. great to build up your cell walls. Or cell membranes.
1: Yeah. Everybody throws out Do you have to supplement to be on a plant based diet? You have to supplement B12 if you're vegan. That is not controversial. You have to do it. But I have MTHFR because, you know, why not um, add it to the mix of yeah. my genetic glory? So I've taken uh, methylated B vitamin complex forever. My husband is homozygous for MTHFR as well. So he takes it and he eats animal protein and we live in i live in northeastern ohio so nobody that i check and i check almost all of my patients have normal vitamin d levels so hmm. i take a vitamin d supplement which is the same as i recommend my husband do and you know there's literature in the spine world and in the orthopedic world around optimizing omega 3 and how omega 3s compete with omega 6 for the same enzymes and it either goes down the inflammatory pathway or the anti-inflammatory pathway And so, you know, I do think it's important to get adequate amounts of omega-3. You can obviously get it from fish sources. And I think people who eat salmon five times a week, they're getting it. Do you get an, you know, I supplement it with algae oil again because you can get EPA and DHA. And I do some plant-based versions of that, but that's an ALA. I happen to have run my genetics and I know that I'm a good converter of ALA to the EPA and DHA. Other people may struggle with it because they're not, but you can supplement if you need to. Right. So, the only supplement that's really different that I use myself than what I use for my patients or my family is the B vitamin, but again, you know, there are people who need to take B vitamins, the methylated B vitamins anyway.
0: What is the acronym M-T-
1: MTHFR? Yes,
0: and and that's a gene related to as you're saying the methylation of B vitamins, so yeah. yeah. So I'm just fascinated to learn a little bit about your biomarkers because I know that some of the concern with an animal-based ketogenic diet or carnivore ketogenic diet is that you get a lot of saturated fat and that sometimes dries up the LDL, uh, low-density lipoprotein. And it sounds like your LDL is quite controlled. And I think that's been some of the debate, I would say, within the keto or low-carb community. One, is LDL in itself an important marker? Is that predictive of cardiovascular disease? The traditional mainstream is like, of course, like you. That's why you have statins. That's right. why you control it. That's very, very bad. Lower LDL as much as possible. The Dave Feldman sort of um, LDL is more of an energy transporter for right. triglyceride or free fatty acids. Uh, LDL in and of itself is not necessarily a predictor. But it sounds like for your case, you saw the LDL shift favorably when you shifted to plant based, and obviously the key thing was. Uh, CRPC reactive protein, which is a very common inflammation marker. Any other biomarkers that you thought were interesting? I mean, I think that's probably something that would be helpful for listeners who are interested in keto and interested in going more plant-based or animal based. Obviously, I think something like LDL or or just seeing other people's biomarkers and how they shift could be informative for people to make decisions around, okay, like I might be trading some risk here, but maybe getting some benefit here. I think that's Obviously, you know, consult with your doctor, get educated, right. don't just listen to us talking and not knowing your, perc- your specific situation. But I think it's educational or at least entertaining to understand some of the levers that are in play between plant-based versus animal-based ketogenic or low-carb diets. But before you answer that question, let's take a quick break.
1: Hey, y'all. Chrissy's back. Now, you've already heard about Keto Collagen Plus, but how is it being used within our community? Let's hear from one of our own customers, Sarah, about her results after using Keto Collagen Plus. I'll have a couple scoops of this in the morning, shaken over ice with a splash of almond milk. And that's literally all this needs. I mean, the, the flavor is, it's the best. I'm getting all the clean proteins and micronutrients in the process. There are plenty of collagen supplements on the market. But there are huge advantages for going with HVMN. They're all about transparency in the way that they label their products. They don't make it hard for you to see what is in here because they have nothing to hide. They have everything to brag about, which kind of brings me to my next point of why I love HVMN and that is they formulate their products to include the highest quality version of each ingredient. This can still be great for somebody like me who is not keto, but I do value high quality collagen and pure ingredients, the highest quality of fats that you can find. Thanks for watching and have a great day. I would defer to somebody like Ethan Weiss to really go into the discussions about LDL. It's, you know, even though I was a pathologist and I understand the, you know, laboratory science aspect of it and the mortality data and all of that, it's outside of my wheelhouse to really get into the, deeply into the science from a professional standpoint around that. To me, the data makes the most sense for me it would seem looking at it to optimize my LDL. Mm -hmm. So other biomarkers that are out there that you can do. I mean, again, I've looked at my own amino acid profile that gets expensive. There's other thing, homocysteine is another marker that you can check. I mean, you can run all sorts of nutritional panels on people, whether those are super helpful or not, it's a little hard. There's a lot of labs that are out there running these different nutritional, like urine organic acids. And things like that are they super helpful I, I mean there's not enough data to say it if you're a high level athlete or if you don't feel great I mean I think the, those are things that can be interesting sometimes we see that and then the question becomes okay so what do you do with this yeah. is there solid data around running omega-3 to omega-6 ratios not solid you know it's interesting we'll get there eventually
0: Right, it's definitely speculative and anthropological rather than like here's an RCT. For
1: sure, inflammatory markers are interesting. Homocysteine is another one that, for me, went down when I added the methylated B vitamins. You know, thyroid things are important for people to measure as their thyroid staying healthy. Your other hormone levels are important to measure. So you know, your estrogen, your testosterone, your progesterone. Those are things that are important to measure, and there's some natural shifts that happen in life. I mean, I'm 46 now, so you know who knows how much longer that all stays normal. But there's no babies happening anytime soon. <laughs> I can you that. So you know, I mean, those are things that I think people can measure. I think honestly. I was really into measuring a lot of this stuff for a long time and wearing my aura ring. And I mean, I have to say the thing that's the most beneficial for me as a type one diabetic is to have a continuous glucose monitor. I think the data that you get from that is important when it comes to foods. But at the same time, I can do something about it. So if my Blood sugar is elevated, I can increase my insulin. If your blood sugar is elevated from a food, you can certainly use that data if you're type 2 diabetic or if you have metabolic syndrome to change what you're eating so that you can optimize that. And at the end of the day, I think it's about asking yourself how you feel and are you enjoying what you're eating? Are you enjoying your life? Do you feel deprived? And, you know, look at those different things. Obviously, if you have, you know, health concerns, then you know, that are specific, then working with your doctor on those, you know, are important things that you can do. And the keto diet, I think, has a ton of benefits. Um, I utilize it in a lot of my patients. So I use it when, you know, we're in the pre-surgery phase and after surgery. You know, anecdotally, I can say patients are using less pain medication and we've had lower infection rates. And it's, a worthwhile diet, like at this point, it's hard for me to justify randomizing my patients because everybody does so well. And if they have metabolic syndrome, I mean, I've taken somebody who's in an orthopedic practice. So it isn't that hard with an A1C of nine down to an A1C of six, just by having them a type two diabetic, you know, not changing any medicine, sometimes even taking people off of medicines in that process with dietary changes. So there can be a lot of benefits. So those are things that we can look at But there's a ton of labs that are running a bunch of different gut microbiome tests and things like that that are out there. Every time I think I understand the microbiome, then there's another study that comes out that shows me that I just really don't (laughs) understand. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think we need to figure it out and we need to dial that in. But as far as do you run your genetics to figure out what you should eat, I'm not sold on that yet. I'm not sure that we're there. Can you run what goes on in your gut microbiome? I think you can change your gut microbiome and the data has shown that based on what you eat. So would I recommend somebody who's on a carnivore diet go to a, do a complete 180 transition and go to a plant-based diet that's a low-carb plant-based diet tomorrow? No, your gut is going to not have seen those you know, fibers and it's going to freak out and you're going to feel miserable. Yeah. So. Uh, So anything is a transition, right? I mean, I do worry about what happens to the gut microbiome if you don't feed it any sources of insoluble fiber for long, long periods of time. I mean, that concerns me. But the human species has eaten a varied diet from the existence. And that's why we've been able to populate this entire planet.
0: Yeah, I think we're quite adaptive. I think, I mean, to answer that question there, I would say that the data or evidence would suggest that, okay, if we're not feeding the gut microbiome insoluble fiber, well, there's also a uh, microbiome, I guess, fauna or species that live off of butyrate or short-chain fatty acids, yep. which is you can get from, you know, eating carnivore. So you, essentially, right. obviously, the folks or the, the microbiome or like bacteria that thrive off of fiber aren't going to survive. It's just like very much shifting your gut microbiome. And I would agree with you that We can measure these changes, but I think it's still unclear what is optimal and if that's personalized.
1: And how do we do something with that therapeutically? Like, we're just not there. The data is not there for me to know what to do with myself, let alone for me to know what to do with patients as far as to say, okay, And, you know, I have some patients who have gone on a carnivore diet. I mean, that's the thing for me. I'm not dogmatic about it. Like, what? works best for you and what connects with you and how do we make it easy for you, which is, you know, why I've spent a bunch of time with Ethan and the keto company, the K-E-Y-T-O, like helping build the meal plans, because it makes it simple for people and I like the breath device. And there's the whole spectrum that's available. So you can do traditional keto there, you can do the more heart healthy keto there. You can do plant-based if you want to do plant-based and all the resources are there to make it easy. And I think people will gravitate towards if you're miserable, you're not going to do it. And so people are going to gravitate towards what makes them feel better, what makes them feel less deprived. I feel such a sense of freedom. My blood sugars are easy to manage. I enjoy the foods that I'm eating. So for me, it doesn't feel restrictive to do this, whereas carnivore to me feels incredibly restrictive. Like, I just don't like meat. So, you know, doing that, there's almost zero interest that I have in that, but that's me.
0: I would agree with you 100% there, where there's the intuition of what makes you happy. You, like, we are all unique individuals. And then two, if we can bring data, something like a CGM or your blood panels or lipid panels, I think you have your intuition backed up by data to help drive and sort of bounce off those two ways of, of thinking. Two things I thought were interesting from your discussion there. One is talking about CGMs. And I remember that, you know, I was, Relatively early in terms of you know three four years ago experimenting with CGMs as someone with not diabetic and obviously this is And I remember getting a a piece of mail or a a feedback saying that you're healthy This is just a toy for you. You know, I have type 1 diabetes how could you you know use something that's so you know something that's like a medical necessity for me as like a toy and I felt like that you know, one, I empathize that, you know, we're not here trying to make light of anyone's medical condition. But I think it's really just opening up tools for everyone. I mean, for me, the understanding to be able to open up and and see your blood sugar continuously, very, very easily.
1: Knowledge is power.
0: Knowledge is power. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So diabetes is a tricky, tough type one diabetes is a tricky, tough condition. Mm. I think it would be great for all type 2s to have access to CGM because I think there's a lot that they can learn. For a typical 30-year-old metabolically healthy person, do you learn a lot from wearing a CGM? Probably for a short period of time. But somebody who has a strong family history of type 2 diabetes, that may be really helpful for them. It is tricky. I mean, I have sort of a love-hate relationship i mean i remember so i got my cgm long before the sort of biohacking community was wearing cgms and for me it was a big deal because i had this long discussion with my husband for i'm like listen i'm gonna wear this thing. i got a cgm before i got a pump i'm like listen i'm gonna wear this thing it's gonna be on my body all the time are you weirded out by that and he's like whatever if it makes your type one easier and keeps you alive i'm (laughs) like no like my husband's super cool yeah and it didn't bother him at all. But for me, I was like, eh, am I ready to you know, sort of take this leap and do that? And I have to tell you, it was the best decision that I ever made because that real-time data is really effective. Now, it's super frustrating when, for hormonal reasons or stress reasons or food reasons, your blood sugar is crazy and all over the place. I mean, and a couple of years ago, my dad died and people brought over all of these gluten-free treats and things like mm-hmm. that. And I was like whatever I'm going on, like I'm going to do whatever I'm sad. And I can tell you is, I don't know how people do it, who, you know, are watching their CGM go up and down all day and riding the roller coaster. So I can see where type ones have this sort of love hate relationship with it because I don't really feel lows. So I do actually need it. Now, whether that's because I have ketones on board and it's protective, probably. But if I'm not feeling a low and I'm in the 40s, I rely on the CGM to tell me that. There's yeah. some technical things where if you lay on it at night, you can have it looks like a low and it's actually just because it's compressed. Yeah. But I think it's cool for the bio. I mean, now it's not a big deal to wear it. and
0: Yeah, hopefully it's the future where we just have this sort of not just blood sugar, but, you know, all the key biomarkers. It'd be cool if you had like a real-time inflammation measure or something, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I would love to have... A continuous ketone meter and a lactate meter. like I would love for it all to be there. So I know am I running truly in my sub lactate threshold? Exactly. Or have I crossed over like, I, I mean, I love that some of it, you know, I played with the aura ring for a while I just recently I wore it for about a year. And then I put it in a drawer because I'm like, I, you know, I've made any changes that I'm going to make now I wake up and I know whether I had a good night's sleep or yeah. not. I'm not sure at this stage, maybe down the road, I'll find some other thing that I'll want to Hack into it. But sometimes data is too much and you just need to unplug from all that stuff. There's an automated insulin system that you build it yourself. So it's sort of an artificial pancreas that a group of type one diabetics and people who love them created this where nobody's making any profit off of it. And so my continuous glucose monitor on my phone, the app is on my phone, And it there's an algorithm that's in it. So you build it yourself. I've tweaked the algorithm that works well for the low carb the way I do it. And so it's every five minutes, it's adjusting my insulin doses based on my CGM data. So that there's the cognitive load of type one diabetes is a whole lot less.
0: Yeah. I mean I think that's like an exciting future. Hopefully we can look forward to where we have this kind of information at real time. And then Yeah, just curious. I mean, we've talked about keto. I mean, how often are are you measuring ketones? Do you find a relative sweet spot that you like being in? Is that something that you just stop measuring after a while? And where are you with uh, ketones?
1: I still measure the ketones a lot and I use it with patients. So for some of my patients, I want to get them because they have neurologic conditions and I do want to get them to a therapeutic level. I feel like, and this is anecdotal and still sort of feeling our way through the dark on this, there's data around patients who have seizures that you're trying to control them where you need to get them therapeutically. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of new exciting data around utilization with these for the Department of Defense to alter seizure threshold and things like that. I tend to find that I feel best when my beta-hydroxybutyrate is around 1.5 or higher.
0: That's decently high. I mean, it's not so, I mean, for folks listening, it's not trivial. I mean, a lot of people will say the threshold for nutritional ketosis is 0.5. So if you're above 1.5, that's quite good.
1: I mean, that's where I find my hunger levels go to zero, where I have to sort of remind myself to eat. And I'm not, I don't live there all the time. I mean, you know, I can go for a long run and I can come back and my beta hydroxybutyrate is six, which, you know, as a type one diabetic, I want to bring that down. But so the thing, so urine strips are completely useless for me at this point. I can have a beta hydroxybutyrate of six and I can blow an eight on the keto meter and still have only trace on urine because our body, our kidneys adapt. And so you start to lose less of the acetoacetate. I was testing beta-hydroxybutyrate at least once or twice a day in the past. I will intermittently test that much. Sometimes I'll test more. I do fasting protocols periodically. And so as a type 1, I want to know where my beta-hydroxybutyrate is at because there are some slippery slopes that I can get into.
0: Yeah, so she had a type 1. I remember like the first time I was Googling ketosis four or five years ago. It was under the context right. of ketoacidosis, which is right. uncontrolled ketogenesis.
1: Which is totally different than nutritional ketosis, right? Now I really like playing again with the, I use the breath device now most days rather than testing my ketones unless I'm sick. So it's been interesting for me to play with the difference between, okay, what drives my beta-hydroxybutyrate up? What drives my breath acetone up? Mm-hmm. So I find that I sort of feel the best if my breath acetone is in that six to eight range on the way that they've scaled it on the ketometer. I have some patients who I want to get their beta-hydroxybutyrate above two for therapeutic reasons. And so, you know, then we'll utilize things like MCT oil and Things like that yeah. to help bump that up. Interesting. So, but most people don't need to keep it up that high. I mean, and I know of, you know, there are athletes who feel great when their beta hydroxybutyrate is 0.8. I just have been doing this long enough that I found that that's where I feel the best. I also will utilize calorie restriction if I need to with running to sort of get it in that range rather than eating a ton of fat, but I'm weight stable at this point. So, Paying attention to what goes on with weight, what goes on with those things are important.
0: No, I think it's actually interesting. I'm glad you teased upon the different ways you can measure, quote unquote, ketosis. Because my day job over at HVMN is to commercialize a ketone ester. And obviously, measuring the effects of that is very important. I think you hit on the key ways. Blood is usually what clinical trials and studies benchmark on. So, that's right. the most gold standard way to measure. But obviously, finger sticking is sometimes intimidating. So you have breath acetone, and right. acetone is considered a third ketone body. Where acetoacetate, which is sometimes excreted through the kit or through urine, is measured mm-hmm. through urine strips. And I think just hit on the spot where, as someone is sort of more and more keto adapted, you see that acetoacetate. Level attaining weight because it's like you're peeing out nutrients essentially. It doesn't make sense for you to be excreting out.
1: Our bodies are super adaptive. I mean, this is, I have this conversation in the plant based community all the time, whereas, you know, utilizing glucose is the primary fuel source and what is physiologic glucose sparing versus insulin resistance and all of those things. But our bodies get good at utilizing available fuel, which again goes back to that why we exist. Through famine and scarcity and all sorts of different food environments throughout the millennia.
0: And then one thing before going on to mindset as we wrap up here. I was curious when you said that you do a lot of nutritional counseling or or intervention pre and post surgery. That sounds relatively... This is outside my wheelhouse, I'm not a surgeon. Is that bespoke to, is that relatively rare? I mean, it sounds like something that obviously makes sense. Like you're obviously priming someone for something invasive. You want to be doing stuff like that ahead of time. That sounds like that should be standard of care, but I, I don't think it is. Can you talk us through how you even came to that?
1: Yeah, it's relatively new to have these conversations in orthopedics. I mean, some of the driver within orthopedics have to do with some uh, finances, drive a lot of things. So, as the payment models for total joint replacements have shifted to where there's some shared risk. So, you know, if a patient has a complication, the hospital system can reimburse lower amounts or they end up sharing some of that expense with the care of the patient during that time, and physicians are incentivized to have better outcomes. So for sure, there've been financial drivers to improving patients' metabolic health. And so Mm. part of that is the reason why my sort of speaking card gets filled up every year is having these conversations with how do we optimize patients from a metabolic standpoint. There's growing data on how advanced glycation end products and these byproducts in the diet. So those are the sticky molecules that get stuck mainly from advanced glycation end products that are produced in the body, which is how we measure an A1C. So -hmm. if your blood sugars are elevated, there can be some AGEs that we eat in the diet, but most of the AGEs that we see in the body tend to be the ones that are produced endogenously, so in the body themselves. And those lead to spine degeneration. We see things like frozen shoulder, iliotibial band syndrome, which gives pain around the legs, Um, all of those things can stick to nerves which is why we get diabetic neuropathy and actually oftentimes patients are diagnosed with diabetic neuropathy before they're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and so those are things that we can do for patients in the sort of outside of surgery if we're getting and we're talking about surgical outcomes so beta hydroxybutyrate is an anti-inflammatory that's one of the other benefits Mm -hmm. of it it's You know, not to get too technical, but it's a COX-2 inhibitor, which things like Celebrex, meloxicam, those, you know, specific anti-inflammatories impact that enzyme. And there's this NLRP3 inflammasome that beta-hydroxybutyrate is an inhibitor of. So there are these different mechanisms where not only do we reduce these advanced glycation end products, but then we increase beta-hydroxybutyrate so that it can have sort of a double effect on overall inflammation. So there's data that shows that patients who have a BMI over 40, which is a measure of your body mass index, or if your A1C gets a little nuanced, whether it's above 6.5 or 7 in relation to spine surgery, increases your risk of having serious complications, infections, wound problems, nerve problems, things like that. So there's a push to optimize patients. We don't operate, we don't typically do elective spine surgeries on people who are smokers because we know that nicotine constricts blood vessels and that there's a lot of different mechanisms why smoking can negatively impact a spine fusion. And so that's seen as a modifiable risk factor. For a long time we thought that A1C and BMI were not modifiable risk factors. And my big push is that both of those are incredibly modifiable. We just have to actually work with patients to help them do that and help them be successful. And you can lower somebody's A1C in a very short period of time. Now, Mm -hmm. you know, typically it's three months, but I have seen significant decrease in six weeks. And then there's other markers like fructosamine that if I have a patient that we need to get to surgery more quickly, I can see their compliance with the diet by checking a fructosamine within that short period of time. So there's data that after surgery, if you have these high blood sugar excursions, which can happen from the stress of surgery, sometimes we give steroids as part of the post-surgical or the interoperative care of a patient, and those things can increase your blood sugars, that those negatively impact patients' outcomes. You know, again, things like infection, wound healing problems, things like that. So The goal is to optimize a patient and not have those big glucose spikes that can happen or have somebody stay above a high level. And you can drive it down with insulin, which has some negative impacts there, or you can modify it with diet and keep it down below with diet. So oftentimes I'll ask my patients to go on the low-carb diet before surgery. We always sort of have a joke around here because patients will sometimes do so well with the diet that they'll cancel surgery. So, (laughs) you know, my husband has said, why don't you give him the diet after surgery and, you know, operate (laughs) on them first. But it's not everybody, but a lot of patients will come into it, you know, feeling better. And there's some more data looking at the bariatric patients and other surgical outcomes. And it's we're still very much in the infancy of understanding how to utilize the ketogenic diet to improve surgical outcomes, but there's more and more focus on how do we do that. And so you know, it's a diet that provides adequate amino acids, so you're gonna have those building blocks for healing, and then the anti-inflammatory properties, especially in an era where we're trying to minimize the amount of opioids that we use for patients, there's some potential benefit there and people who are looking into that.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating, and it makes a lot of sense, especially given the, the evidence around recovery rates and, reducing the risk coming into the surgery just it just makes a lot of sense and it sounds like it's relatively novel i mean when i have conversations with more general practice doctors they sometimes they talk about the insurance pair system where Mm -hmm. nutritional counseling gets billed at you know something pretty low and then if you prescribe insulin or metformin it's boom you make the big bucks and you can get people in and out in 10 20 minutes i'm curious in terms of how you deal with the business side of medicine. It it sounds like what you're doing is actually good for the end patient outcome. I mean, is that challenging with the existing insurance payer infrastructure or have you found a way around it? Is that a problem in the surgery world?
1: I have a team around. So I have a nurse who's with me and an athletic trainer and they both are trained in going over the diet with the patient. So I will let the patients know and I have handouts that I've created And I'll say, you know, and again, I've started using the keto app and the keto device with them. And that's been really helpful because it sort of lays things out. So, you know, we try and lay it out for patients. So I don't spend all of the time doing the dietary counseling. And honestly, I don't bill for that. A pre-surgical, you know, where we make the decision to do spine surgery bills as one of the highest codes that's available. And I'm spending that time talking to the patient about the risk, but you know, a lot of the conversation I have, I honestly, I think at times we as surgeons have a better opportunity to impact our patients' overall health because it's not like going into the primary care doctor's office where it's, okay, let's talk about your weight again this year. Let's talk about your markers again this year. I'm saying, okay, we have something very definite, discreet that we're going to do at this point. I would like you to do this diet for the time period leading up to surgery and at least six weeks after surgery so that we can improve your outcomes. And infection in the spine is a, you know, I'll tell them, it's a miserable year for both of us. You know, it's multiple surgeries, it's IV antibiotics. I mean, there's some self-serving nature to this. Like, I don't want to wash pus out of somebody's back Yikes. on a Saturday yeah. when I could hang out with my kids. So optimizing patients makes their post-operative process much easier better for both them and for me, if I'm, you know, being honest about it. And so it's worth doing that conversation on the front end, the nurses on the floor at the hospital. And it took time. I mean, I had to sort of create my own diet for patients. And the joke is I walk in the room and I see an apple juice sitting there and I flip out and, you know, joke, that's not low carb. But then, what I find is about eighty-five percent of my patients, and again, this is anecdotal, but will stay on the diet after surgery because they're like, "Wow, I lost all this weight. I feel a whole lot better." And for sure, there are those patients who are like, "Dr. Diulas, I will do this because you want me to do this. I hate you, but I'm going to follow the instructions because you know I'm a compliant patient." And as soon as I give them permission to go off the diet, they're like, "You know, bread, cereal, pasta, all back." Yeah, but. The thing that speaks the most to me are the number of patients who stay on the diet afterwards because they've reduced their blood pressure, they've reduced the medications that they're on, you know, and we just came in to fix their their leg pain related to their lumbar stenosis. Well, now, you know, and some of it's multifactorial because now they can exercise more because their leg pain is better, but they're also motivated to exercise more because they've lost weight, they feel better, their energy levels are better. And sometimes we're reducing the medications that they're on. So there's an overall cost reduction in their medications postoperatively compared to what they were on before surgery. So do I get paid? You know, I'd make a whole lot more money if I just looked at people's MRIs and did surgery on them. right? But for me, it's a lot bigger thing. And we, again, we have this opportunity, just like with having the conversation with people about not smoking, you know, if we help people change these things that are, it's not a moral judgment. I mean, I was severely morbidly obese and keeping the weight off. It's not a moral thing. It's about dialing in what works best with your physiology. And, you know, it's not about being lazy and willpower. It's that's the thing that's been the most beneficial for me with the low carb diet is I'm just not hungry all the time like I am if I have carbs in. So, yes, it's a different thing to have these conversations in a surgical practice. But, man, we have the opportunity to really impact people's lives in a positive way. And they're, you know, sort of in a frame of mind where they're interested in hearing about
0: it. I mean, that's super commendable and it makes a lot of sense. that You have them captive in in the most positive sense of the word as possible. And that's a chance to really set some positive interventions and, and, and guide rails in place. That's very cool. I mean, it just makes sense in the hospital setting. It's it's funny when, when you look at the typical hospital food and you're, I mean, again, like there's only so many levers you have on treating someone. And it sounds like you're doing the sort of the upfront work in terms of just giving some guidance there that really helps overall outcomes, which in a sense is like way cheaper for everyone long term, which I think needs to be right. the case. And we're going to be in a sustainable healthcare system in this country. So appreciate that.
1: And because keto has become so popular, it's not like, you know, there's so many food choices that are out there and recipes. And, you know, like we've talked about here, there's such a variation of how you do low carb. So I have plant based patients who do low carb plant based because that's what they prefer. So there's a lot of ways that you can adapt it to what works for a patient. I mean, that's the biggest thing for me is that it can look slightly different for different people. It doesn't have to be like one prescriptive you know, program. As long as you're getting the benefit that you're looking for, there's different ways of, there's more than one way up the mountain.
0: So go back to the bookmark. We mentioned mm-hmm. right in the beginning about getting into a flow state. And it sounds like you're essentially doing some version of intermittent fasting uh, as potentially one way to help jumpstart that process. It sounds like on big operating room days, you just have a cup of black coffee and work through the day. So you're basically doing like a 24 hour or a one meal a day fast. I'm curious to dive in to time restriction as well as dietary restriction as one lever that you're playing around with. And do you commonly intermittent fast? Do you do extended fast? I mean, that might be just challenging from a type one perspective.
1: No, I'll do five day fasts at a time I've done, you know, The fasting mimicking diet, I played with that. You know, there was some literature that came out a number of years ago that out of Walter Longo's lab, and there's this suggestion that if you do fasting mimicking diet, the, you know, beta cells can restart. I can tell you if I was a rodent, I could probably easily restart my beta cells because they will grow fast. I don't have to fail. (laughs) So my beta cells still don't work, but I can significantly lower my overall insulin use after a multi day fast. And I, see benefit in that for myself. Mm -hmm. So I do it cautiously. I measure my ketone levels so I know how to keep it within a safe range. Obviously, that's something that type one diabetic needs to be super careful with doing that because you can tip your ketone levels too high and have issues with that. I intermittent fast almost every day. It is very rare that I will eat something in the morning. I'll go on a four or five hour run. I'll have black coffee before that. I'll bring an electrolyte drink with me and at the most I'll have UCAN which is that slow release starch. I always have rapid acting glucose with me in case I need it and I always usually carry a packet of peanut butter but I haven't ever had to, you know, break into the peanut butter. Yeah. So yes, I do use time-restricted feeding. There's benefit in that. I worry about the people looking at some of the data who do time-restricted feeding and then have a big carbohydrate meal at the end of it because mm-hmm. it looks like the You're... glucose excursions can be much higher yep. if you do that rather than having a low carbohydrate meal. But I mean, I think some of the data is still out on that. Like, is it that overall calories are reduced. I mean, I do think, I'm not one that believes, listen, I'm a middle-aged woman, calories still matter. I mean, I can gain weight on the keto diet if I, even with all that I do, if I'm not careful, and some of that's, you know, my own genetic predisposition to gaining weight, but calories do still matter. So do you eat fewer calories because you're time-restricted I think probably the ideal diet is eat more of your calories in the morning and less of your calories later in the day. My life doesn't really lend to that, but I'm more insulin sensitive earlier in the day than I am later in the day. Yeah, no,
0: I would agree with your points there. I think just to give some of the folks who aren't as plugged into sort of the nutrition debate, I think the main two debate schools are the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis, which says that Carbs and the insulin spike is the dominant driver of weight gain versus the calories in, and calories out, school, calories out, school, which is calorie counting. All of it. I feel like most people would agree that both kind of matter. I just feel like it's, it gets so polarized in the in the debates yeah. that like yes, calories of course matter. You can't eat 10,000 calories of fat and expect to just right. you know lose weight. That's just thermodynamics. But obviously the hormone balance of having insulin and your macronutrients is also important too. And I think that maybe the, it's an academic debate, like what matters more than the other. And it's like, I could see the arguments on both sides, why one can should consider one framework a little bit more primal. But I think from a practical perspective, think about both, right? Like think about controlling right. your calories, and then think about how you want to balance your macros.
1: I mean, there's this philosopher that I'm really, I you know, followed his work for decades now, named Ken Wilber, who, you know, has said no one is smart enough to be wrong 100% of the time. (laughs) So I mean, basically, for me, that is what, what are the strings of truth that are in all of this stuff. So I can tell you that I gained 10 pounds immediately within a week going on insulin. And if I eat a bunch of carbohydrates and I have to give myself insulin, that is the quickest way for me to gain weight. No question about it. So the insulin carbohydrate model to me personally has validity. You know, the work that David Ludwig is doing and in full disclosure, I published a paper with him and his group, Belinda Leonard, who is there on using the low carbohydrate diet in type one diabetics. And we're doing some additional studies, randomized controlled trial studies on that. So the data around preserving metabolism with the low-carb diet is interesting data. And I have to say that that's been more my experience, that I can physically eat more calories if I'm in the low-carb state and not notice weight gain as much. I don't have to be quite as careful. I will leave that to the nutrition scientists to have that debate. At the same time, Finney and Bullock did a study where they kept, so they had patients who were on a low-carb diet that they gave them enough calories so that they were weight stable and they showed a decrease in their A1C. So these were people who had metabolic syndrome. So again, that just proves to me that you can design a low-carb diet where people don't lose weight. And calories in that particular case obviously still matter. And again, that's my experience. I can overeat calories if I eat mindlessly or eat for psychological reasons rather than eating to hunger on a low-carb diet. It's easier. It is much easier for me to stay within those that framework if I'm doing a low-carb diet. And I think it's that way for a lot of people where they're fighting their willpower less on a low-carbohydrate diet than they are on a standard traditional calories-in-calories-out model.
0: Well said. I I would agree with that. And I think we all have the kind of intuitive experience. It's like easy to munch on popcorn or cookies or something, but it's a lot harder to munch on, you know, steak if you're, you know, animal-based, or I guess, like, it's hard to munch on, like, too many avocados. It just gets too... You're full. Yeah, you're full. Now, I want to get inside the the mind of a surgeon. Obviously, when you're doing these, I imagine multiple-hour surgeries. I think this is interesting when I was talking to these marathon champions, triathlon champions, what is that mental state like? Because I think part of what I've been thinking about is obviously an upswing in interest in meditation, but I feel like a lot of meditation is very performative. It's not like actually real. I think people are just kind of like doing their little app for five minutes a day. I'm not sure that that does anything, but it feels like when people describe a true sense of flow where very present, really performing at peak performance, that seems to be the a, a, a truer state of being in a, in a meditative, productive state. So I'm just still like, I think, probing at this mental state that I think we all kind of intuitively have felt at some point in our lives and trying to describe it in different situations. So I'm curious from a surgery perspective, obviously, very high stakes, very high risk, you got to be precise. I imagine sometimes these hours, these surgeries take multiple hours. Are you like thinking about every specific move or does it go by by a blur? Is it just kind of a blink and you're done? Walk us through what it's like to be in your mind as you're doing some of these procedures.
1: So again, all of these topics are fascinating to me. I've sort of studied meditation for the better part of almost three decades at this point Mm. and had many, many different practices and some of it were for very specific purposes. And I've done 10-day meditation retreats and had that experience. And there are different types of meditation. So I can't say that every surgeon experiences this. Maybe it has to do with the practice that I've done. Maybe not. I don't know the answer to that. I can just tell you in my experience, most surgeons will talk about the fact that time disappears when you're in the operating room. You know, anesthesia will ask, the joke is sort of like football time where... They'll ask how much longer it's going to be, and, you know, you'll say 20 minutes, and that really means two hours. (laughs) So, you know, but we have all experienced that where you're operating, you're focusing, you're doing what you're doing, and you look up and you're like, wow. Like, for me, it felt like half an hour, but it was really two hours. In actual feeling. So, when I'm doing surgery, again, it's super focused because I'm doing it under a microscope. So, there is not even peripheral vision a lot of times involved in what I'm doing. So, I'm focusing on that particular area. It's mm-hmm. very precise in doing it. So, it's got all of my attention and we'll have music playing in the room but honestly it's for everybody else there i don't hear it until we get to the end where we're closing and then you know it's a lot more relaxed environment you're just really focused i can tell you you know the chatter that goes on in my head where i'm constantly thinking about things and asking these different questions and going through you know, what it is I'm going to do with my kids and scheduling and planning and do I need to get this done and what's the most interesting research article that I can read and what was the podcast that I listened to on the way in to work. When I'm operating, that is completely shut off. There is what I'm doing in front of me and it's very similar to me to this mindfulness states that you know i've gotten into in some of these very purposeful meditation practices and if you look at some of the wow. different monastic traditions based on whatever the religion is there's that sort of chop wood carry water be mindful during the times when you're doing things yep. versus the times when you're sitting and doing sitting meditations those are different ways of getting into these different states so I can say easily that I experienced. Now, there are times in the operating room where things get stressful. And so then that shifts it. I'll actually see a spike in my blood sugar. And those are absolutely focusing moments. But the emotions change with that when you're having to think quickly and trying to figure out a different plan and what to do.
0: Adrenaline dump, cortisol goes up, blood sugar goes up.
1: Blood sugar goes up, yeah. So, you know, so that will shift it. Or if a patient, you know, if anesthesia says something's wrong with the patient, all of a sudden, you know, we start to move very quickly and you're still very focused, but then the overall, you know, body hormones change. But, you know, that's the biggest thing for me is I'm not thinking about what I'm doing the rest of my day. I'm not perseverating on what happened three days ago while I'm operating. All of that shuts off.
0: Nice. I think in the modern age, people are seeking that clarity. Because <laughs> I think it, we're just so like bombarded with the monkey brain chattering about, yeah, what happened on social media? What should I be doing? And it sounds like you're able to find that calmness within the storm of being in an operating room, which is fascinating. I mean, do you feel like your meditation practice has helped you get in that state? Or is it just completely orthogonal? When you're a professional in the operating room, it just happened to be that you're focused or do you feel like just being attuned to your mindfulness helped you more easily get into flow state?
1: I think I recognize it more because of the the meditation, the meditation training that I've had. Mm-hmm. I mean, my husband's a plastic surgeon, and I can tell you that some of the things that I say I experience, he's also experienced as well, and he doesn't have this background of meditation. He's done more of it lately. So, you know, some of those things, being super focused, it's probably yes and. So I think probably the training that I've done, the amount of time that I've spent in seated meditation and different types of meditation have been helpful. You know, other meditation practices like Tonglen meditation practice, I don't know that that's necessarily helped with that. But I think most surgeons will say that this is a time when they are singularly focused. Mm. And... I can truly say that I love being in the operating room. And then there's some ego gratification that happens at the end of the surgery where, you know, you can see your pictures of what you've done. You can see the work that you've done. You know, my husband is a plastic surgeon, but he also is an artist and he makes these amazing cake boss like cakes for people that are just these gorgeous works of art and There is the state that you're in while you're doing those things. And then, you know, there's the benefit that you get sort of seeing the finished product that have two very different responses to the human psyche, I think.
0: I mean, I think all of us would aspire to get into that state of our professional craft, right? Just being able to go into flow state and really love what we're doing. So I think we covered a huge amount of ground. So I want (laughs) to ask you my last question, which I always like doing, which is, if you had infinite resources, infinite money, people, mouse, whatever to manipulate, what science led you would you run? What question would you like to answer?
1: You know, I think the biggest question that I would like to answer is how do we connect the best with people to help them succeed? Mm-hmm. Right? What are the single most effective things that we can do? I remember the feeling of failure. And the negative self-messages and the societal negativity when you are overweight or struggling with your weight and not able to be successful with that. And I don't think the answer is one thing. I mean, I think that that's where I get frustrated with the so-called diet wars is I really do think that there are variations in it, that some of it is demographic, some of it is cultural, some of it is physiologic. And if we really could spend unlimited amounts of money trying to figure out what it is that will really help people from different walks of life be successful with this, I mean, we have to figure it out because the obesity epidemic and the type 2 diabetes epidemic are going to bankrupt us if we don't figure it out. So. Obviously, if there's extra money in there, I'd like a cure for type 1 diabetes. Let's just do it. (laughs) And we're there. But from a truly altruistic standpoint of, you know, what would I do? It would be how do we really figure out how to connect with people so that we don't have a kid who feels ostracized because of their weight. Like, that just eats at my soul because it's not their fault that they're there. There are so many factors that go into that. And... We just need to really figure out how to help people get to the other side of metabolic health.
0: Well said. I mean, sometimes when I ask that question, people have a pretty specific science question, but I think what you're asking is, got a lot more practical impact. How do we actually affect population health, right? Like how do we make our fellow citizens, fellow Americans, fellow world, fellow humans be healthier? Which is uh, ultimately what medicine is and what we ultimately wanna have these conversations for. How do we educate? And, and get people to think a little bit for themselves and and improve their health
1: and not be judgmental when people fail, right? Mm-hmm. Like because and I hate the like the the word failure where they don't reach their goals because to me, you know, again, I was felt like I was doing everything right and I wasn't being successful and there was nobody that I could really feel that I could reach out to to help navigate that and say, okay, what do you do different? So a lot of it was. I mean, if you look at the number of quote unquote diets that I've tried, it's been practically all of them. So how do we really help people be successful? That is where I would spend the money. And it's huge. Obviously, like it's not one simple question where we can spend a million dollars and do the studies and figure that out. But how do we connect with people? How do we make it easy for them to follow? How do we give them markers of success? And again, that's Part of the reason why I've had all these conversations with, you know, Ethan and Keto and that, because there's a marker that you can measure. There's a program where things can help you be successful with the Keto device and the app. But ultimately, the bigger picture is how do we really connect with people and help them be successful.
0: Well said, Carrie. So you're on Twitter, you're on social. What what are the projects? What are the shout outs? How do people follow along with all the great stuff you're working on?
1: I have a Facebook page, which is Carrie Daulis MD. I have an Instagram page, which is also Carrie Daulis MD. And I try and post foods that I'm eating on there to give people ideas, and kid pictures and dog pictures and all of those sort of fun life things. Yeah. And then on Twitter, I am C.A. Diulis. And I try not to get into fights on Twitter because it's just not my thing.
0: Sometimes fun to jump in every now and then.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was something that I saw recently where somebody was saying something ridiculous and showed spine pictures. And that it's rare that I will like you know get engaged negatively with somebody on Twitter but I was like I just had to call that one out because the pictures just didn't correlate at all with what they were saying and I was like <laughs> I can't I'm
0: calling BS like this like, is a yeah, sp- yeah. I'm I'm the expert here
1: not yeah I got to call that one out so All
0: right we'll leave it at that. Thanks so much for the time. I think we covered a, a bunch of topics here. I'm sure that our listeners will probably have additional follow-up questions so if we get uh, enough of a momentum there I would love to have you back on it was a fascinating conversation.
1: Yeah, happy to. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really really, really appreciate
0: it. Likewise. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: If you're interested to learn more about HVMN, visit www.hvmn.com pod. Thank you for tuning in.